Okay, great. All right, let's pray, let's pray one more time and uh, we'll get into the text today. <clears throat> let's pray. Well, Father, we, um, we thank you, Lord, again for the glorious, glorious privilege of not only possessing your word, Lord, but also having been granted illumination to understand your word. And Father, today it is incumbent upon us, Lord, to understand your word for the sake of our own personal and corporate holiness. As the text of Scripture that we're looking at today is so focused upon the issue that is so near and dear to your heart, and that is our personal sanctification and our purity as a church. And we just pray, God, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. God, we pray that you would accomplish several things here today, many more things that I could ever do with my words. Take this text, Lord, by your Spirit and cause us to feast upon what you do in our hearts. Lord, be magnified at the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, one of the reasons why in our church we don't engage in slapstick Christianity or the reasons why I don't come up here and start the sermon with a joke is because the Bible is so filled with truths that uh, really no other way of putting it but that are deadly serious, deadly serious. And that's the way that God feels towards His people regarding the issue of holiness Holiness is not trendy for God. It's not just a subject matter. It's not just a fancy book cover. Holiness for God is that which emanates right out of His personal being. Holiness is that which emanates right out of the character of God Himself. And so when God calls us to be holy, notice the injunction in 1 Peter, be holy even as I am holy. So all exhortations towards personal holiness and even what we're looking at here in Corinthians, corporate holiness as a church, are rooted and grounded in the very character and in the very nature of God Himself. Our God is a holy God and demands that His people be holy, that they be separate, that they be different that they be separated, consecrated, however you want to word it, that we be not like the rest of the world. We are called to be different. And though, brothers and sisters, we are no longer commanded to cut our hair in a certain way or to eat certain foods or to wear certain clothing or to go to a particular place in a particular geographical location and to offer up physical sacrifices, nevertheless, you and I are still called out of the world, called to be separate, called to be distinct, called to be salt, and to be light in the earth. And I pray that this passage of Scripture will really enrich us as we look at Paul's call to holiness, really a second part of a call to holiness. And really, there's two ways that he's going to admonish us. There's two ways that he's going to basically exhort us to walk in holiness and according to two things. Number one, pursuing holiness 
according to divine adoption. Now, the text we're looking at today is verses 17 down to chapter 7, verse 1. We already kind of looked at the first portion there. And so let's read again 17 and 18. It says, Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And uh, what incredible language, is it not? Paul, in doing this, he strings together a series of Old Testament, Old Covenant imageries that would be familiar to any reader, anybody who's accustomed to the doctrine, the theology of the Old Testament. He strings along, as we already seen, talk about the temple, the temple motif, the temple theme in Scripture, and he identifies the believers, the church as a whole, as the temple of God in which God now resides. Individually, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you are the, ch- the temple of God, rather chapter 6. You are individually the temple of God. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But corporately, we are building ourselves up as God's special dwelling place, the church. And that's why the church is to be distinct. The church is to be different. The church is to be separate. And the church is to be pure. It's amazing language that he uses here. The language of sonship is the way that he argues. He quotes this idea of being God's sons and his daughters. But I want you to see the whole purpose of it. The whole purpose of it is for us to pursue holiness. After all, if you go to verse 1 of chapter 7, that is where this whole thing is going to climax. It's going to climax in this exhortation. Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. So in other words, it is a call to self, not just examination, but self-purification. Not just self-introspection, it is a call to self-cleansing. And we'll get to more of that in a moment. But this whole issue of separation is then really what's important here. What Paul is really concerned with in the context is, if you remember there, at the very last of all of the things that he says we are different than, all of the antithesis that he gives, he says, look, is there any any, um, partnership between righteousness and lawlessness, fellowship, dark, is there any fellowship with light and darkness? Is there any harmony with, between Christ and Belial, or Belial, which is just another word for Satan? Of course not. He goes on to say, what, what therefore has a believer in common with an unbeliever? This is language that we have to reckon with. As much as we want to say, look, we need to reach out to believer, unbelievers. Look, we need to be inviting towards people who are, as Paul says, outsiders, those who are outside of the membership, outside of the communion of the church. As much as we want to be welcoming and warm and loving and as much as we want to embrace people in the Lord, we are nevertheless called to be distinct. We are nevertheless called to a certain type of, of, of isolation from the world that we just can't blend right in with everybody else, that we just can't do all of the things that the world does, particularly sinful things. But I want to show you the way that Paul zeroes in here on the subject of idolatry. 
That is really his main burden. His main focus is that the church would understand that just as idolatry is completely forbidden for the temple of God, in the same way, we should have no fellowship with darkness. We should have no fellowship with false teaching. And so this is the type of thing that it encompasses. When we talk about being unequally yoked, perhaps your uh, Bible has that phrase, unequally yoked, and that's a good phrase. If you have the ESV, I think that's what it has, King James. I have the, I have the uh, New American Standard, and mine says, don't be bound together. Um, I was in the ESV for a while, but then, you know, I thought, you know, if the NASB is good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. They're both great translations, but the point is the same, and that is that we cannot be in a close harmony, a close association with unbelievers in terms of those things which would cause us compromise, cause us to compromise our Christian witness, cause us to compromise our Christian convictions. Let me tell you what one author says. This is uh, Murray Harris's commentary on Corinthians. He says, the Corinthians are to avoid any public or private relationship with unbelievers that are incompatible with or would compromise Christian standards, Christian adherence to monotheism, and Christian witness. So in other words, in terms of what we believe, our monotheistic or our Trinitarian theology, we cannot so bound ourselves together with unbelievers that we compromise. Unthinkably, we hear of churches doing this very thing, compromising in this very way, bringing in um, other religions and other faiths. I've even heard of pastors who have interfaith dialogues in the church to see what we can learn from our Muslim brothers and sisters or our Mormon brothers and sisters or our Jewish brothers and sisters in Judaism. But no, Paul would say that there is no possible way that this should be so. That it would be like taking an idol into the very temple of God. Thinking of Old Covenant times, Old Testament times. It would be like taking the, the, the god Dagon or taking the, the, an idol of Ashtoreth or Molech and taking it into the Holy of Holies and erecting that idol up. And saying that this is somehow true worship or true spirituality. And so, brothers and sisters, first and foremost, that's Paul's burden. That we understand that we can't compromise on a spiritual level. And there's so much spirituality, quote-unquote, in the world, on television. Oprah, you know, has become something of a goddess when it comes to spirituality to some people. She influences the minds and hearts of millions of people around the world with her paganism and her New Age-ism. But the influences are everywhere, and we have to be completely distinct. We have to protect the gospel at all cost. Take it from an apostle who is always protecting the gospel. Galatians chapter 1, what is he doing? Protecting the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, what's he doing? Protecting the gospel. The book of Romans is to protect the gospel. He's always and in every turn protecting the purity of the gospel and the purity of the doctrine of the people of God. But this has implications, just as Murray Harris says, of all sorts of different relationships, any private or public relationship that would cause you to compromise. That's the best way to see it. And so you say, well, I want to know, can I enter into that business partnership with that person? I don't know. Do you think it will cause you to compromise? You know, personal advice for whatever it's worth, partnerships of those types, in my experience, just have never worked out. 
Even between brethren. I tell you what, if you're going to go start a business and you're going to be in a partnership with somebody, make sure one of you is the boss so you can fire the other one, right? Because when there's complete equal ultimacy in that relationship, a lot of times it deteriorates into destruction. And I've seen, I've seen otherwise good and godly brethren take each other to court over money instead of what Paul says, be wronged instead. You see, when those types of associations are created, there's a lot invested. Your family gets invested in it. Your livelihood gets invested in it. Your finances, your well-being is invested in that partnership. And so you'd be very wise as to what type of fellowship or partnership you are going to be entering into for the same reason. You know, this passage, many say, well, you know, funny, a lot of people quote this text Don't be unequally yoked together as a proof text for why you shouldn't marry somebody who is not in the faith. And say, but the marriage is not even in the text. But I would say, look, could there be anything more fundamentally uh, intimate and, and important and vital than the marriage relationship? What is more important than that? So obviously, I think here, Paul has all of that in the implications of what he's saying. He is obviously saying, look, to whatever degree a relationship becomes intimate and close. You know, I'll tell you what, the closest people in my life are not unbelievers. I'll tell you that right now. And I do that on purpose. The closest people in my life are my brothers and sisters in Christ. My, the closest people in my life are not gonna be business partners or investors or, 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 or what have you, or even family members who don't know the Lord. Because what ends up happening is you let people into the bosom of your heart the way that the kings of Israel did and what happened, but very quickly they began to be drawn away from the Lord. If you think you're strong enough to withstand the type of influence and the type of compromise that will come from being unequally bound with unbelievers, you're ignorant. The Bible says bad company corrupts good morals. And we would do well to take special heed to that very thing. Now, Paul shifts away, as I said, from the language of the temple now to the language of the family. He goes away from the house of God to the household of God, we could say. And in doing that, he is going to be quoting a different text. He brings, as a matter of fact, in this section of Scripture, several texts to bring out what he's talking about to bring out the implications of this separation that he envisions. And the first one that he brings up is Isaiah 52:11. Oh, I tell you, anytime I go into a study of these Old Testament texts, I have to tell you I got to guard my heart from wanting to just drop everything in 2 Corinthians and start up a whole new sermon series on something like Isaiah because it's so fascinating. Isaiah 52:11, that is in the very very marrow of the gospel. Do you know that? Isaiah 52, verse 7. See, if you remember this text, yeah, go ahead and turn there with me. Isaiah 52, verse 7. So many of the texts that are quoted to substantiate the gospel in the New Testament come and spring out of the book of Isaiah. Verse 7 says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness. Literally, the Hebrew word there is good news of good. That's the gospel. The gospel is good news of good. It is the greatest good that man will ever know or will ever tell of. 
It is the good news of the Son of God who came to redeem His people. It's the good news of the Son of God who came to lay down His life for His brethren. But He doesn't just lay down His life for His brethren. He also sanctifies His brethren. So verse 11 is where Paul is quoting here in 2 Corinthians. And there it says this, Depart, depart, go out from there, touching nothing unclean. Go out of the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. But if you, if you notice, in 2 Corinthians, he omits that last section of Isaiah and, and does not quote that part, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. See, that was a reference to the Levitical priests who exclusively, according to Numbers, Numbers chapter 3, were ordained to or called to uh, handle the holy vessels of God, the vessels, the instruments that were for the use of the worship of the true and living God. But by, by Paul omitting that text, what he is saying in essence is that this text is now applicable to you and I who have been granted wild access into the holy of all. You don't need to be the high priest anymore. We have one high priest. One final ultimate high priest who has reconciled us to God. Who has brought us in by a new and a living way. And you have all the privileges of the people of God. The privileges are yours. But every time God gives us privilege, He also gives us duty. See, we are God's priests, Revelation chapter 5, verse 10. He is making a kingdom of priests to our God. Every person here who is in Christ is a priest to their God. You are now an ambassador. You are now the instrument of bringing people to the true and living God through the gospel. All believers are therefore to consecrate themselves as little priests, you didn't know today you were going to come in here and hear somebody tell you, you are a little priest. But you are. You are a priest to your God. You're a saint. You're a chosen one. You're, a, you're His holy people. His royal priesthood is His chosen race. And it goes on and on and on. Nothing brings the favor of God. If you look back in Corinthians again, nothing brings the favor of God like holiness. What does he say there? Do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. Actually, when he, when he references that type of